great, wasn't it? Just want to praise this morning. It's so awesome. Yeah, thank you. Well, it is really great to be with you this morning in this capacity, a little different than what you usually see me down in children's ministry. Uh, It's really great to be here reading the Word of God and teaching on Zechariah. So I'm going to invite you to stand now as you are able for the reading of the Word. For as we continue with the series in Zechariah, we'll be in the seventh chapter. Before we begin, however, I'd like you to join me in prayer. Lord, we have come here today as your followers, giving you thanks for the experience of life. I pray that you would use me today to proclaim this, your message, to your people. Fill me with your spirit of wisdom. Enable the hearts and the minds of the church to truly hear your good word today. Together, may we accomplish your purpose and bring glory to your name. Amen. The reading from Zechariah 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regum Melik together with their men, to entreat the Lord by asking the priest of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, today, as we continue with Zechariah, we stand at this midpoint of our sermon series. We also stand at the center of this text, where chapter 7, which we will look at today, and chapter 8, which we will look at next week, form the bridge between the visions of the first six chapters and the prophecies of the chapters to follow. 
Chapter 7 begins with a new date marker, letting us know that some time has passed since the beginning of the book. In chapter 1, we learn that Zechariah receives his night vision in the second year of King Darius. And now, here in chapter 7, we read that we are in the fourth year of King Darius, on the fourth day of Kislev, the ninth month. According to this date marker, chapter 7 begins two years after Zechariah receives these first visions and about two years after the reconstruction of the temple has started. We are at the midpoint of its completion, and God's people are starting to see some progress. Their efforts are slowly but surely paying off, and it seems like God's hand of blessing is upon them. When the restoration of the temple was well on its way, the people of Bethel sent a delegation of men to inquire of the Lord through the priest and the prophets whether they should continue their ritual of mourning and fasting in the fifth month as they have done for the last 70 years. The temple reconstruction had begun, and as devout as they had been to this ritual, they were seeking God's will as they asked, is this really necessary anymore? I think their inquiry is sincere. They are questioning the contemporary validity of a religious ritual. Now that the temple is being rebuilt, does this church tradition still hold value? And is this what God requires of them? Here's the thing. God never required this fast. This fast in the fifth month was instituted by people, not God. The priest instructed the people to fast, to remember and mourn the destruction of the temple. This is also true of the seventh month fast, which is mentioned in Zechariah verse 5. In this fast, the people mourned over the assassination of their governor. See, there's only one fast commanded by God, and that was the one on the Day of the Atonement. But during the exile, the Jewish people instituted a total of four fast, the two mentioned here and then two others. God's people had instituted the practice of corporate fasting and mourning as a symbol of repentance and grief over the fall of Jerusalem. For 70 years, they continued this practice. So the delegation was sent, and a pretty straightforward question was asked of God. But the answer they received was anything but straightforward. I'm sure the delegation was hoping to bring back a solid yes or no answer to the people of Bethel, but questions of ritual and tradition are not that simple. What they needed was a nuanced answer that can only be provided by asking them a question. And we see that in verse 5. God asked, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seven months for the past 70 years, was it really me? Was it really for me that you fasted? And then he continued, when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Well, as a parent, I get this approach. See, I'm a parent of two teenagers, a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old. And a simple yes or no answer won't always work, as the details behind a request, as several of you will know, are really important. See, sometimes our kids ask a question or they seek permission, and we must ask clarifying questions to get to the heart of the matter, or they just may slip something by you. 
This is exactly what God is doing here in chapter 7. And in this case, God was getting to the heart of the matter by questioning their motives. Was it really for me that you fasted? God, God questions through, God's questions through Zechariah pointed to the hypocrisy of the steadfast ritual. This tradition was no longer a time to genuinely seek God, but instead had become an indulgent season of self-serving sacrifice. Now, although they had been participating in this ritual of mourning and fasting, the rest of their lives were not lived for God. They were still sinning. Their mourning was empty, and their fasting was disingenuine. They were simply going through the motion because this generation thought it was what was required of them. But God requires something different. It's not the ritual that matters to God. It's the heart of the person that matters most. Before we go on through the text, I want to take a moment just to talk about fasting specifically. First of all, you might want to ask the question, well, what really is fasting? Fasting is an intentional spiritual practice which aims to help you deepen your relationship with God. It is voluntarily giving up something like food or an activity or denying yourself of your personal desires for a set period of time for the purpose of focusing your thoughts on God. In the ancient world, it was primarily understood as a way to express repentance, grief, and humility before God. See, fasting with the right, mo- right motives is generally a good thing. It's a time to confess your sins, to seek the help of God in ministering to others, to show your dependence upon him for your needs. Fasting becomes a problem when we focus on the fast itself, when we focus on what we are giving up rather than focusing on God. Now, we see this a lot over the Lenten season. When people declare what they will be giving up for the next 40 days over Lent, it actually becomes quite a secular task, a time to start a diet or a time to give up alcohol or chocolate. But what ends up missing is the intentional time with God, which, of course, is the goal of the whole thing. The outward act, what the world sees, is not the point. The point is to be is to intentionally turn your full attention to God instead of engaging with or indulging in the thing you gave up for Lent. See, fasting done as an outward, empty ritual is for you. Administering true justice and showing mercy and compassion to one another, that is for God. That is what he requires of us. We'll return to the text. So we return to verse 7, and here the delegation was confronted actually with a third question. Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah again as he proceeded to share the list of commands that were given to the people. God did not command a fast, but he did command that they administer true justice And they showed mercy and compassion to one another. In this command, he also prohibited them from doing two things. The people were prohibited from oppressing the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, the poor. And the people were prohibited 
from plotting evil against each other. Essentially, God commanded them to love one another without bias or prejudice. But instead of letting the law of love live in their hearts, God's people began to take the religious rituals as the most important piece. These prescribed rituals helped them appear righteous and devout on the outside, but their hearts revealed the truth, and God knows our heart. As it's been said before, one can live according to the letter of the law and miss the spirit of the law completely. Through Zechariah, God tells the delegation that their ancestors refused to pay attention and heed the warnings. Like oxen refusing the yoke of their master, they stubbornly turned their backs on God, on the widows, on the fatherless, on the foreigners, on the poor. They covered their ears and wouldn't listen to God's commands. Do you notice the verbs here? They showed deliberate choice to shut out God and his commands of love. There is intentionality here. They refused, they turned, they covered, they made their hearts hard as flint. They would not listen. Say so they lost their hunger for God, and in a sobering progression of rejection, their hearts were hardened. The pre-exilic people stood as a warning to the post-generation just as they stand for us today. Turning from our creator brings natural consequences. The Israelites shut God out and refused to listen to his commands, so he became angry. And in God's anger, he refused to listen to their empty prayers, and he scattered them among the nations. Their refusal to be yoked to God, to listen to his commands, And to abide by his word resulted in transitioning of their community from one of prosperity to a desolate wasteland. It's a warning we should all take to heart. The people of Bethel didn't get an answer to their question until chapter 8. After his interrogation of their hearts, God provided them hope and assures them in verse 19 that the feast of the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth months will become a joyful and glad occasion and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, he says, love truth and peace. So what can we learn from Zechariah? What's valuable for us today? Well, I think there are three takeaways that we can hold on tight for us today. First, God desires us to trust him. He desires our faithful and humble submission before him, trusting in his eternal promises. Our dependence upon him helps us to relinquish our fear-based need of control, and it propels us to relinquish our selfish desire in order to worship him more fully and faithfully. Keep your eyes on God. Don't get distracted by the world and live by faith. This is what God desires of us. I think the second thing that we can take away today is that God requires of us active obedience. As we learned today, fasting is not about the ritual, but about the motivation behind it. 
We have to look deep within ourselves and ask, are we living for God or are we living for ourselves? If we are indeed living for God, then we must live a changed life. And a changed life can only come through genuine and regular repentance. Barry G. Webb writes this, Repentance is not something that can simply be done once and far and once and for all and left behind. It is not merely the renunciation of this or that particular sin, but the renunciation of self and the reorientation of a person's entire life around God. And that has to be lived out day after day and from generation to generation. It's not just a rite of passage but a way of life. Brothers and sisters, it's a way of life. It can be your way of life if you choose this way of life. But it comes down to the integrity of the heart. See, trying our best to integrate the desires of our heart, the words of our lips, our behaviors, and our actions into just one act of praise to God. It's how we live. For worship to be sincere, it has to involve pure motives. But it also has to involve goodwill toward neighbor. For loving God always means loving others. The Israelites' ruin was not caused by neglecting religious rituals, but rather the disregard of God's command to administer justice and to show mercy and compassion to one another. Our God of mercy and compassion requires of us the same. We are to love one another as he loved us. That is what God requires of us. The third takeaway today is that God fulfills us when we hunger for him. See, to hunger by definition is to have a strong desire. And God wants us to hunger for him as much More than we hunger for food, activity, or worldly things. Now, I don't know about you, but I think about food a lot. (laughs) I think about what I'm going to have for breakfast. I think about what I'm going to have for lunch. I try to decide whether I'm going to actually cook dinner for my family or go out yet again. Is it bad if we go through drive-thru or carry-out? Who's going to do the dishes? Can I have that dessert? Or should I stick with those carrots and that bottled water? I'm certainly not the only one, right? By default, we think about food all the time. But the reality is that what we consume influences who we will become. Is it about the fast? Is the fast about the food? Or is the fast about devotion to God? It's necessary to be intentional with our spiritual practices. It's necessary. It's a necessary commitment to the one who feeds us. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Eat This Book, A Conversation in the Art of Spiritual Reading, says this. Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it, take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love 
cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name. Hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company, in company with the Son. The more we hunger for God, the more it consumes our life, the more likely we are to trust him and to live out our faith in active obedience. But also when we hunger for him, really hunger for a deep and abiding relationship with God, he fulfills us. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the bread of life. So in Christ, our hunger, our deepest spiritual hunger is satisfied. Jesus offered his life for us. And whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Does that sound familiar? So feed your appetite with the word of God. Fast from the things that draw you away from God and practice active obedience as an act of love and worship. Friends, our God loves you. I mean, he really loves you. And he has gone to great lengths to show his love for us through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. By having faith in God and trusting him, by practicing active obedience, and by hungering for a deeper relationship with God, you return that love to him. Hold fast to that. I want to lead us now in a time of prayer. It's going to be a bodily prayer. We're going to use our hands in motion because all of us, our souls and our bodies, belong to God. We'll do palms up and palms down, and I'll lead you through that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you desire for us to trust you. Lord, we lay our palms down now. We let go of our insecurities and our doubts. We let go of our fears and our anger. We let go of our need to control. God, we see you before us. As we turn our palms up, we do so in an act of faith. Friends, keep your eye on God. Worship him fully. Breathe in the breath of life. Breathe out your doubt and your fears and insecurities. God, we know that you require from us active obedience. As we turn our palms down once again, Lord, we lay down our empty rituals and our false motives. We ask ourselves, are we living for you or are we living for ourselves? In a time of silence, ask God what sin that you need to repent for today and lay them down at his feet. Turn your palms back up.
God, we know that you require active obedience, and that means that we need to love our neighbor. God, who do you want us to bless today? Ask God who you should bless today, this week, or this month. And ask him to show you how. God, we know that when we hunger for you, you fulfill us completely. Think about what you hunger for today. With your palms down, release what distracts you. Release what distracts you from God and lay this at the Lord's feet. Perhaps it's busyness. Perhaps it's social media. Perhaps it's a mindset that keeps you stuck. What consumes you that you need to set aside for God? And in our final act, we turn our palms up again. We breathe in the breath of God again. Ask God to give you the hunger for him like you've never experienced before. Ask boldly for this hunger, for the bread of life. Now with your palms still up, raise your arms in an act of praise and worship. Oh, you are a good God. Bring your hands back down, still with your palms up, and receive all that God has for you today. Heavenly Father, we thank you, for you are a good and gracious God. And it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.